Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Policy on Demand with Ken Kuykendall and Will Morris. This conversation is about proposed global minimum tax and what to expect next. Will also shares his insights on the effect of the proposed global minimum tax on U.S. politics and the impact on competitiveness. We recorded this conversation in person outside the U.S. Capitol, so you might hear tourists, traffic, and possibly a blower in the distance. Here are Ken and Will. Enjoy the conversation. Will, thank you for joining me. I'm You're very welcome. I'm very excited here. I want to dig in a little bit, talk about the OECD BEPS project, Pillar 1, Pillar 2. Specifically, want to dive in a lot on Pillar 2 and talk about the minimum sure. tax side. So maybe we can start there. So the G7 agreement contemplates a 15% minimum tax that will now work its way through the process. Right. Talk to me about the significance of 15%. Is that intended to be a floor, a ceiling? What are we seeing here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they say at least. Yeah. Uh, and it's important to remember that the at least was inserted by the U.S. So the U.S. does and has said that they regard it as a floor. Yeah. I suspect most other people will view it as a ceiling. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, as we'll discuss, there's more negotiation to come. The U.S. obviously wants to get this, and again, we'll discuss this, as close to 21 as they can do. Um, there are other people in this who want it to be lower than 15. Let, let's put it like that. But it's a starting point. Yeah. Let's maybe dive into that process that needs to happen, because what we have right now, and there's a lot of media reporting on it, but we've got an agreement at the G7 level. That's still got to work its way through the inclusive framework. That's still got to work its way through the G20. You're already seeing some concerns bubble up in that space. Talk to me about the trajectory that's going to take right now. Right. Well, so there's a G20 finance ministers meeting the beginning of July. Uh, I guarantee you there will be an agreement, because there has to be, because if they don't, you know, it's all over. The real question is, you know, what is that agreement? So you work your way through the inclusive framework. Now, 139 countries, you don't have a conversation around a table that large. This is pre-cooked. Yeah. Uh, then you move on to the uh, to the G20 finance ministers meeting, which includes India, it includes China, it includes Brazil, Indonesia, quite importantly, because they take over the uh, G20 presidency uh, next up. So, you know, different people with different with different points of view in this. What it probably means is that to get agreement it's going to stay fairly high level for the moment. The, the G7 is important. Uh, it's important for two reasons. Firstly, if the US had failed at the G7 to get this agreement, there's no way you'd push it through anything else. Um, it's also important because it's obviously the very largest economies, but it's the very largest economies. Yeah. And not everybody has the same point of view uh, you know, in this process. So I think for the moment, they keep it quite high level. They push it through. And then you know, the one other player that you didn't mention in this is actually, where's the EU in this? Yeah. They're one of the G20, but they will have to implement this later on. And there's more to come there. So is there a timeline you see this getting resolved in some way? Everything hangs on what every word means. What does resolved mean? (laughs) Uh, I mean, there will be an agreement in July. I'm fairly certain what they'll say in July is we will give you more details in October. I'm guessing in October they'll say, here's the framework. We will now work on the implementation details and we'll give you those later. So this is a sort of rolling process. And it is intensely political, which is why there'll be an agreement. It is also intensely complex, um, which is why they're going to have to take time to work this out. So July, yes. October, yes. 2022, yes. They're talking about implementation in 23. Maybe. um, Maybe a little beyond that. And I'll come back to this, but that's all important if you start to think about the U.S. political side of this. But I'll come back to that. Just sticking on... Um, what we're seeing out of this 15% minimum tax, sort of two questions. What questions are you hearing from clients and sort of what recommendations do you have for clients? Right. So, you know, again, there's a lot of people saying, what does this mean? Does this mean that it's guaranteed? Well, I think we've, we've dealt with that. No, it doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Uh, it does mean this thing is moving forward. Um, you know, you repeat a number enough times, you know, maybe it, maybe it takes on a life of its own. 
uh, or maybe it doesn't. What it does mean is that the minimum tax is serious. And you know, one of the things, we've talked about this before, Ken, and over the past year and a half, two years now, a lot of US folks have not taken Pillar 2 seriously. Now, partly because uh, under the last administration, it didn't look like guilty was going to change. You know, who knew what was going to happen? There was going to be a guilty exception. But all the rest of the stuff, it's now become more real, but also because we have a number on this now, and we have a bunch of countries who have seriously committed to it, who we might not have thought, like the UK, for example, yeah. we might not have thought of have bought in. Um, so that, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, and again, you alluded to this, is there is a US side to this. Okay, so, you know, the OECD can say stuff. The OECD doesn't legislate. G7 doesn't legislate. Um, the only folks in this who can legislate are, are countries, uh, including, you know, the folks up on the hill, um, but also the EU. Uh, and that's where it takes on a different aspect. So, you know, take it seriously. 15% is a real number, but probably not the final number. Um, but, you know, but watch it. Okay. So let's jump into that. Let's sure. talk about how does this impact the U.S. political environment if you think about the agreement on a 15% minimum tax? Right. So, again, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. And uh, some of it comes down to politics, but some of it comes down to timing. Uh, and, you know, as in many of our colleagues who know much better than I do about this stuff, um, really, it now looks quite unlikely that there'll be a tax bill in the summer, which means it's going to be in the fall, which means it's going to be September, October. Think back to what I said about when the, the G20 will probably pin this down, which is in October. Yeah. You know, what the, what, what the administration obviously would like is for the G20 to act now and say, yes, it's 15 or even higher. Then they can go back to the Congress and say, hey, look what they've done. We need to, we need to do this too. What you're beginning to hear from folks on the Hill, I mean, Chairman Neal has spoken about this openly, is are we sure that we want to move first before other people have acted? So if the OECD process is sort of taking a little longer and we don't know what the final number is going to be, and then there's the uncertainty of are the EU going to do this? What's China going to do? This begins to make people very nervous about raising the, raising the guilty rate, at least all the way up to, to 21%. Yeah, and I will say from my standpoint, Will, one of the concerns I have in this whole discussion is everybody keeps reflecting on guilty and assuming it's a flat rate environment. And when you think about the expense allocations and the places that come into play in the foreign tax credit rules, I think you've got a minimum tax right now that's much higher than 15% oh, no, no, no. trying to piece this stuff together. And I mean, I, you know, I can see why you would, again, if you were trying to sell this, you'd say, well, look, there's not that much difference yeah. between you know, 15 and 21. Yeah. Well, as you say, if guilty moves to country by country yeah. uh, calculations uh, with expense allocation, take out you buy, you still have the foreign tax credit haircut, you actually have a much larger gap. And you look at some of the beneficial aspects, potentially beneficial aspects of Pillar 2, which have this substance-based carve-out, they don't have expense allocation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then actually the, the gap becomes a whole lot larger. And, uh, you know, people, are, I think, again, uh, people on the Hill are beginning to focus on that. Because I say, for a long time, we've been transfixed by Pillar 1. Yeah. But now it's actually, you know, Pillar 2 is becoming real and people are looking at the details. And you're going to lead into my next question here, which is how do we look at all this through a competitiveness line landscape? Because I know that's a focus of the policymakers as well as our clients is give us a, a competitive tax system right. wherever we're going. So yeah. maybe talk a little bit about that. And, you know, I, th I think that if you talk to people, they'll say, look, you know, we already have guilty. If we can level the rest of the world up to that, that's actually a, you know, that's a great thing to do. Um, because then, you know, everybody's businesses are going to be operating under the, under the, same, uh, the same set of rules. But if, in fact, we go five, ten points north of that, that's supremely uncompetitive. And this is when you then get back into questions about, well, does that make, does that make U.S. corporations attractive 
uh, takeover targets, you know, sort of real inversions, quiet inversions, all of that type of stuff. And it does, it does become a competitiveness issue. And particularly if there are other countries which don't buy into this at all, um, then it becomes significant. And obviously the Secretary has talked about, I know with Pat and Nita you were ta you've talked about S.H.I.E.L.D. The Secretary has talked about S.H.I.E.L.D. being a way of, to put it politely, encouraging um, other countries into this. Will that work? We don't know. So next question on that political process is, what's the reaction of the folks in that building there as it relates to agreements that the U.S. Treasury may make on a minimum tax, on an overall OECD uh, agreement? Because there's a lot of work that needs to be done there to, to put that in place. There's a huge amount of work that needs to be done. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's the old saying that, uh, you know, sort of the administration proposes and Congress disposes. You know, that's essentially it. Uh, a lot depends, or some of this depends on what legislative vehicles they decide to use. I think everybody's been thinking up until now that at least with Pillar 1, you're going to need to do a treaty because you're going to need to change things around the arms length standard, you're going to need to change dispute resolution, uh, all of that stuff. Pillar 2, it's always been clear that that can mostly be done by national, legis national legislation. So we did in, in 2017 with TCJ, that's where Guilty and Beat came from, so that other countries can do that. So we can change you know, our minimum tax rules, other countries can implement minimum tax rules uh, if that's what they want to do. But, you know, I think that uh, in terms of moving through, some things are going to strike people as very difficult to do. Um, you know, it's not that everybody's a fan of the arm's length standard, but people will worry about moving too much away from that. You know, what is this principle about allocating profit to a market country? Now, maybe the U.S. does okay at that. Maybe they don't. But, you know, obviously exporters aren't going to. Likewise with Pillar 2, you know, moving away from some of these well-understood accounting concepts uh, into a brand new way of, you know, discerning taxable income. Again, that's going to cause that. That'll pull people up short, I think. So, lots and lots of detail. And yeah, you know, how? In what detail do you legislate this? Well, as you know, the U.S. fashion is to detail, just to do it in a more detailed way. Uh, and that's going to be hard to work out. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. So, will just a final question here. And I've heard this in a lot of circles. It's one thing to say a 15% minimum tax. Yep. But boy, do a lot of implementation concerns come into play, like off of what base, all sorts of things. Can you maybe dive into what are some of the implementation concerns that are already vexing people? Yeah, so let me, let me, let me talk about three of them. You've you just mentioned the first one, but it's a really, really important one. I mean, this is true in pillar one, but it's particularly true in pillar two, which is what is the base off of which you calculate the effective tax rate? And there seems to be, I mean, we, we heard this, you know, we saw this in the blueprint, which came out last year. There seems to be a a suspicion in some quarters of deferred tax accounting that it's just a way of hiding stuff, that stuff never reverses. And you know, there are some items which, sure, it, it, can, be, it can be quite hard to pin down. So what they suggested was something which was, you know, not GAAP or IFRS, not tax accounting either, but something in the middle, something which took global financials, broke it down into a PBT number per country, or at least per entity, and then, you know, aggregated back up per country, and then apply special rules about timing differences to that. And, you know, there's talk of a time period, you know, if, if it's under seven years, then that's fine. If it's over seven years, it isn't. But then what do you do about certain sectors, which are, which are much, much longer term? So I think the accounting issues are absolutely huge. And then even when you've sorted those out, you know, what do you do about things like amortization? Because it's obviously amortization which causes some of the things that they're concerned about. Do they reverse amortization back out of that number? Okay. So that's point one. The second point, I think, is around dispute resolution and what that looks like. Again, you know, pillar one is complex. But there is at least a potential that you get this overarching treaty, put aside the treaty issues and how you get that through the U.S. Senate. 
But you know, there is that. With Pillar 2, as I said, it's all national legislation. Yeah. So what happens if one country wants to build, you know, to use a sort of a tech analogy for a second, a back door, which enables them to actually tax US corporations, even though the US has guilty, which is potentially stricter than this. So working out this consistent implementation and with, through a dispute resolution mechanism is going to be huge. And I don't think they're there yet. And then the third thing, which is really, really practical, you know, going back to my experience uh, in a very large corporation, how do you collect all this stuff? I mean, how do you make all this stuff work? Do you have to go in and essentially redo ERPs? I think you're going to have to. And as we all know, redoing ERPs can be an absolute nightmare. And, you know, governments think that this is easy to do. You have all the information. That's, that's all you ever hear. And you go, well, firstly, we don't. We probably can collect it. But if we don't collect in the way the ERP is set up for in the first place, then we're going to have to redo the ERPs. So some really, really big issues there. Thank you so much for diving into this, Will. I'm looking at the next several months and the degree of sort of complexity and unbundling we're going to have yep. to do at the same time these global developments are happening and we're watching what could potentially happen on U.S. tax policy. I assume we'll be talking a lot more often I on these topics. I, I would imagine. This is, you have 4D chess? I don't know. But, <laughs> Thank you so much, Will. Great to be with you, Ken. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more Policy on Demand, check out the link in this episode's description. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.